This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello there everybody. Uh, On tonight's uh, show we are going to be looking at the Korean drama Perfect Number, um, an adaptation of The Devotion of Suspect X by uh, Kisho Hijohino which I'm sure is a really horrible uh, pronunciation, so I apologise in advance, as well as any other names we're going to no doubt screw up on this show. Um, as always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do via Facebook or Twitter. You can also drop us an email, uh, which is acfilmclub at yahoo.com. Um, we also have got the blog there, which uh, you can listen to the whole back catalogue of our episodes, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. And uh, if you log on there now, you can also cast your vote for what we will be watching on our Halloween episode. And I would like to say, Stephen, I think we've got a we've got an interesting selection of films that we put together as a team, as, both ourselves and uh, team member Steph. Yeah, I think we've got a good collection of of classic Asian horror, a couple of new refreshing looks. And there's even a film on there I haven't watched. So uh, I'll be happy with whatever our audience decides. Yeah, I mean, we obviously tried, when we were making the list, we obviously tried to avoid, you know, those films that everyone talks about. So we we cut out things like Ring and Audition. Because, I mean, everybody's talked about them. You can go into any time anyone wants to talk about Asian horror. It's one of those films. So we've... We've intentionally cut those ones out and tried to focus on things that don't get discussed much so we've got things like dark water on there we've got heisu we've got free extremes uh we've got some newer stuff on there like the wailing and rigor mortis so i would hope that there's something that captures people's imagination i mean there's even a couple of my cinema shames on there like first and the tale of two sisters so if we managed to cross one of those off it'd be really great uh but you know like yourself i'm i'm excited to see which way our listeners choose to go uh, with this one, certainly there is uh, there's some definitely some interesting discussions to be had with the films that uh, have uh, been put on that list. So it's down to you now, to uh, you, the good people, to get out there and vote. Uh, the poll closes on the fifteenth, so uh, make sure you get your votes in before then. And uh, we will be obviously looking at the winner on our next episode. Where fingers crossed, we will be joined once more by um, our good friend Zoe, aka Zo- Zobo with Shotgun. Um, who will no doubt be taking great delight in us looking at something a little darker, especially after we made a look at a Korean romantic melodrama last time. So, But, I mean, has there been sort of anything that's been sort of holding your interest since we recorded last, even? Well, I haven't watched much um, Asian cinema, um, but I guess in terms of Asian-American cinema, the big, the big release in the last month has been Crazy Rich Asians, which I did manage to go and check out. Um, I don't know. I don't think you've been able to see it. But, I've uh, still not been able to see it. I know, it. I know we've, uh, we've, we've talked, about, talked about it coming out, and I know that I've talked with it of came over on uh, Movies and Tea and uh, Game Warp. It's, uh, obviously talked about it coming out, and it's sort of been everywhere. 
and I know they're making a big fuss about it because it's like a Hollywood production with an all Asian cast, and it kind of skates over the fact that uh, they, we've already really had this with Better Luck uh, Tomorrow, uh, which was uh, directed by the director of I think it's like the guy Justin Lin, um, who directed those. But we're scared over that. But um, yeah, it's got Constant Wu, it's got Aquafina, so. I'm excited to see it for those two reasons alone, and I've heard it's been had sort of rave reviews across the board. So, um, what this obviously holds for the future of, of cinema going forward is going to be interesting to see. Are we going to see more all Asian casts in Hollywood productions, or is it sort of this niche thing? I mean, the title alone, I'm not sure if it's offensive or not, but um, I'm certainly interested to see it. No doubt when it comes across on the movie channel, I'll probably watch it then. So. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. It's um, it, it's got a fantastic cast. It's got a few laughs, but I've got to be honest with you, mate. It's a pretty standard Hollywood rom com, yeah. um, which hits all the normal beats. Um, but luckily, the, the the rather opulent location work and the cast, which we mustn't forget, also includes Michelle Yeoh, who is actually rather excellent kind of makes it all worthwhile but i suspect it's got a slightly overhyped um box office yes yeah. <laughs> and i think we'll look back on it in a few years as a as a fairly adequate movie um nothing more nothing less i think it's in the moment it's the the less of the two evils if you're looking for a date movie at the moment because i think it's you either go and see crazy rich asians or you go and see the new mamma mia i think those are your two date date night options unless you're obviously seeing someone who wants to see someone a little darker I don't know if you're dating Zoe or one of her friends <laughs> who wants to take you to like a splatter fest but yeah it's sort of like your safe date night option so if you go and see like Mamma Mia or Crazy Rich Asians so I think that certainly helped things at the moment so indeed and I'd much rather see Crazy Rich Asians cool. <laughs> you don't have to sing along to it <laughs> that's true um I mean, for myself, I mean, I actually have dived because been trying to dive into some of the old Shaw Brothers movies that uh, Amazon Prime have. Uh, so I actually checked out um, a real talk, real throwback here, and this is a Shaw Brothers uh, real chopper talking movie, and it's a key influence of uh, Wu Tang Clan. I don't know if you're familiar with the music of Wu Tang, Stephen. I don't know if that's your your thing. Are you down with the kids? <laughs> Well, I was down with the kids 20 years ago when the Wu-Tang Clan were a thing. But yeah, I'm aware of the, the RZA and his ilk. Yeah, I mean, the RZA actually, there's... Wait, can I sound? <laughs> Seriously. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, the Vice, on Vice Island at the moment, they got the Vice Guy to film, and it's in its second season. Um, obviously, the episodes of interest to ourselves, being fan, Asian cinema fans, was the episode on Kaiju movies. And more recently, they've had the RZA talking about the influence of martial arts movies on his music and obviously the Wu-Tang Clan in particular and obviously he cited one of the key influences being uh, the film Shaolin and Wu-Tang uh, which you can actually hear samples of if you l listen to the track Bring the Ruckus um, it actually opens with uh, the uh, a little clip from that uh, film and they also uh, draw inspiration for the track Sh Mysteries of Chinese Shadow Boxing as well from the same film um the quality, the the copy that is actually on Amazon Prime is absolute garbage. Cop like quality, it's like they're pretty much you're watching it in like Forty Second Street. 
Um, which I don't know. We either fill you with nostalgia or frustration that the fact that they don't have a cleaner copy of this movie. But uh, as for the film itself, it's directed by Gordon Liu, who does also stars as well. So it features some really nice fight choreography. Uh, some again, some interesting train sequences. So you got like brings to mind things such as like Thirty Six Chamber of Shaolin in that respect. But um, the story itself leaves a lot to be desired, and you're probably going to watch it more for the old fight scenes, including. The opening scene, which almost looks like a, like a 1940s dance routine, where you've got this one guy taking on like six other guys, and these guys are like almost in synchronization with their moves. It's absolutely fantastic to watch. So uh, if you like Shaw Brothers movies, yeah, definitely give uh, Shaolin and Wu-Tang a, a look. It's uh, probably worth your time. While we're obviously on the subject of old movies as well, um, Tom Mez, the master of... Asian literature, uh, well, film criticism literature, should we say, um, is back at it. He's currently got a new book coming out through Our Films, uh, which is going to focus on the Lone Wolf and Cub series, um, a series which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, don't What about yourself, Stephen? Oh, very much so. Um, I've, uh, I've got them all on my Cody box. Um, did a review of a couple of them for Eastern Kicks a few years ago, so I've got some nice uh, review copies of them but they're, they're I've, I've, I've pre-ordered the book on your um <laughs> on your tip um, <laughs> i'm very excited about reading it yeah i mean the thing with arrow though they they charge you this is my frustration with arrow and as much as i love arrow um if you pre-order it you have to pay straight off it's not the case of uh they reserve you a copy and charge you when they send it out and this is a really frustrating aspect to their service and you do can obviously get it from Amazon as well, but if you want to order directly through um, Arrow, you unfortunately have to pay in advance. And I, I find it a little frustrating, and I'm not sure if it's obviously because of the the smaller business model or what's going on there. But it is a little frustrating to obviously have to pay for something you're pre-ordering. So, but um, with anything like Arrow, if they do anything on limited release, you kind of have to buy it when it comes out because otherwise it goes up stupid prices as we saw with like the Battles of Honor and Humanity collection uh, the Female President Scorpion collection which Stephen keeps taunting me with because I'm evil <laughs> indeed <laughs> um, so I, I'm kind of excited to uh, obviously obviously see um, to, see, to see what it uh, he covers because as I said I think since ever since I saw Baby Cut the River Sticks I've been I was just like hooked on that series and, and went back and like watched them all so but do you have a favourite in the series? I probably like the first one the best okay. but they're not diminishing returns at all I think they're all they all have the same sort of basic ideas and themes yeah. but they're very different movies aren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah I mean, they... it's, it's hard to ex- it's hard to explain, but uh, the, sort of the levels of realism and craziness you see, go, go, go up and down. Yeah, I found the even ones to be the best ones in the series, uh, but that's just my personal preference. But yeah, I mean they're all pretty interesting in their own ways. They're really violent and they're fun pop star movies, and you can see how they were like a key in- inspiration for like Kill Bill, along with the likes of Lady Snowblood. So um, it was kind of unsurprising when. And I also grew up with the um, with the manga. It was one oh, of the okay. first manga that was available in this country, really. I think through Dark Horse. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember, sort of, in sixth form, someone was collecting them, and I'd I'd read them. So the, there's that side of it 
for me as well in sort of the whole the whole pop culture thing, not just the film, but also the manga. Before we obviously uh, get on to one of our one of my personal favourite segments of the show, and that's uh, Stephen's jaunts into the dark side of Asian cinema, uh, we did obviously get an email through since the last show, uh, which is always kind of exciting to see. And uh, this from Kevin, who asked, uh, "Would you consider doing uh, episodes for Shinji Shinya?" to Tsukamoto, films like Tetsuo or Bullet Ballet. I'd love to tune in for those. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Kevin, for getting in touch with ourselves. Uh, and yes, we have obviously talked about doing Shinya Tsukamoto. Uh, hopefully by then we'll be able to pronounce his name with a little more flow. Um, as he's certainly one of those key directors, and I mean, he was one of those directors who sort of like came to the forefront before we had like this big revival and interest in in Asian cinema, I remember things like um, Tetsuo the Iron Man coming up, and I think it was like movie drama, it was Channel 4 that I first saw that movie and was like kind of blown away, and especially with the sequel, um, Body Hammer. Um, just remember seeing it and thinking there was like nothing else like it. Um, and I think you're you're kind of a fan of mine, right? In saying, Stephen, I he's well, oh. Absolutely. I mean, I have <clears throat> I have talked about one of his films before last year in our um, horror draft. Was it a horror draft? I think it yeah, was. We when did I talked about draft. Kotoko. Yeah, when I talked about Kotoko, which is a uh, he's in it actually. He's not he, he directs and and has a starring role in it. Um, but I would say Tetsuo was was there for me maybe even before i was seriously into asian cinema i remember having a vhs of that when i was sort of exploring the the darker cult side of of world cinema in general yeah, before yeah. Set, settling down but i had a, i definitely had the had the original on vhs cassette and i think i had body hammer too um but i've always picked up his films i wouldn't say he's my you know he's not like a sono or a, a mikey t- but um He's certainly somebody with an interesting voice, and far more than those two fir- those first two films as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, he's sort of like the guy who's sort of spearheaded the Japanese cyberpunk movement. And when we think of Japanese cyberpunk, it's kind of different from the American cyberpunk, which is obviously like computers and things like the Matrix. As Japanese cyberpunk is a lot more about the melding of of humanity with technology so you see a lot more sort of like Cronenberg style mutation work in his his films um and certainly I think with things like Tetsuo it sort of was the film which sort of spearheaded that sort of whole movement really um and we've seen like American films that were influenced again by the Japanese cyberpunk films which followed in its wake and uh I know Tom Mez again um, wrote a really great book on the films of Tsukamoto uh, called Iron Man, which is uh, worth picking up, especially alongside his book on Takashi Miike called Agitator. Um, both those books I would recommend uh, having on your bookshelf if you're a, if you're a sort of a fan of uh, cool Asian cinema, especially. So he will be a director that we will be looking at a bit closer in a future episode. Um, as to where we start. I think we would need to figure that out because, I mean, he's one of those directors I don't sort of tend to pick up his films. I tend to, like, watch them and feel that I got what I needed from that one experience. But it's uh, he's got many different avenues. As I said, Snake of June is completely different to, like, Tetsuo and much like Bullet Ballet is completely different to those films. So um, we, I think we obviously have to uh, try and figure out, find out, find a good entrance point for those for those films, definitely. But... No, good, good, good suggestion. We'll pick it up. And if anyone's got any other suggestions, 
email us, contact us, and all the places Elba keeps telling you about. Yeah. Because yes. uh, sometimes the choices are hard for us, aren't they? And <laughs> it'd be good to get some um, direction. Yeah, I mean, we love, I mean, we obviously have this wide range of things that we want to discuss, and it's nice to know what you, the listeners, would like us to hear us discuss, and it's always nice to get that feedback. So, yeah, you can either drop us a mail through the website, uh, or you can... Um, as I said, you can send us an email, which is acfilmclub at yahoo.com, as well as Facebook and Twitter. So uh, the options are open uh, to, you know, let us know what you want us to uh, be watching. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, it's uh, I think it's about time now to obviously pass the mic over to Stephen and, uh, and allow him to sort of take control now as we uh, delve into another journey into the dark side of Asian cinema. So, Stephen, what have you got for us this episode? What I've got this time is a couple of stories, sad stories, about a couple of South Korean actresses who sadly took their own lives. Um, So, I will apologise in advance because I find Korean names the hardest thing to pronounce, but uh, wish me luck and come delve into that dark side. So the Asian film industry is like every other film industry. There are links to organised crime, suicides, murders, salacious gossip. And in this series, I'm going to have a look at those darker side of Asian cinema and tell you some tales about the famous names they don't always want you to hear. Now, last time I told you about the tragic life of Superstar, whose fame spread across Asia and into the Western world. But today I want to talk about a couple of South Korean actresses, both of whom took themselves from this mortal coil, and look a little at the problems and pressures associated with South Korea. Lee eun Ju was born in 1980 in Gunsan, but moved to Seoul after graduating high school and found work modelling school uniforms. This led to roles in TV dramas, and she quickly made her film debut in Park Chung-wan's Rainbow Trout. She clearly impressed as the next year she was the lead actress in famous director Hong Sang-soo's Virgin Stripped Bear by Her Bachelors, which gained a slot on the Uncertain Regard section of that year's Cannes Film Festival. Next up was Bungie Jumping of Their Own, where she starred alongside future superstar Lee Byung-hun. And then we have my personal favourite, Lover's Concerto, a romantic melodrama with Son Yi Jin, you may remember her from our episode about the classic, and Che Taehyun, fresh off his big screen and mega hit, My Sassy Girl. Lee and Ju's career was but a couple of years old, and she was already box office gold. A couple of lesser films followed, but in 2004 she would star in two films that would shape her career. Firstly, Taeguki, The Brotherhood of War, bought, which brought the director of superstars Jang Dong-gun and Won Bin together in a story of two brothers conscripted to fight in the Korean War. Taeguki was the biggest Korean box office success of all time, at that time. Even now it's considered a must-watch for fans of Korean cinema. Lee fit in a successful drama and then went on to make what would be her final film, the erotic thriller the Scarlet Letter. Now, The Scarlet Letter is a risky, for Korea, glossy, in some ways daring film that talks about and shows the corruption of sex and lust on the human condition and ends with a sequence set in a trunk, a car trunk that I won't spoil. The next year, everything changed. Lee graduated from university. 
But just days later, on the 22nd of February 2005, she slit her wrists and hanged herself. Less than five years after her first leading role, with her most successful year of a meteoric career path behind her, she had taken her own life. She left behind a suicide note scrawled in her own blood. It said, Mum, I'm sorry and I love you. Another note left behind said, I wanted to do too much. Even though I live, I'm not really alive. I don't want anyone to be disappointed. It's nice having money. I wanted to make money. Outpourings of grief from fellow celebrities and the public at large followed. And even now there's a memorial for her each year. See, what everyone didn't realise or had chosen to ignore was that Lee and Jew suffered from severe depression. Family, financial and career pressures, along with intense public scrutiny of her nude scene in The Scarlet Letter, had caused long periods of insomnia and had built up her depression to the point she could handle it no more. Now, if only this was a single tragic story. Lee and Jew was a starlet on the rise, but Choi Jin Sil was one of the most beloved actresses in South Korea, gaining the nickname The Nation's Actress. Her career is not known as Lee's outside career, but she was the star of TV, of movies, of 150 television commercials. Hers was a story of a young girl from a single-parent family, born into poverty, who had risen to be one of the original superstars of Korean entertainment. But as we know, and as I'll probably keep telling you, rises from rags to riches rarely are smooth, and even more rarely end happily. In 1994, her former manager was murdered by her road manager, and Choi was called to give evidence. The Korean nation at large was shocked, and she was the subject of many rumours about her actual involvement. She was stalked, defamed publicly, and at one point almost abducted. Her career recovered, and she, her marriage to a famous baseball player, Cho Sung Min, in the year 2000, would garner further controversy. Despite the marriage reducing a daughter and a son, it became clear that Cho was guilty of domestic abuse, and Choi made this publicly clear in 2004, when she appeared in public displaying a bruised and swollen face. A messy divorce would follow, but in some ways something more shocking was to happen. Her sponsors said she had broken her contract because her actions had shown to, failed to, and I quote, maintain dignity. She initially won the case but we're going to come back to that shortly. On the 8th of September 2008, Ahn Jae-hwan, the husband of a popular comedian and a friend of choice, committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. Rumours started to circulate that Ahn killed himself because of financial issues and that Choi was his loan shark. We have to remember the internet was up and running and in full swing now. And these baseless rumours and faceless vitriol aimed at Choi were adding to the stress on an already damaged woman. To the shock of the entire Korean nation, Choi Jin-sil committed suicide by hanging on the 2nd of October 2008 at her home in Seoul. And remember those sponsors who said a public display of the effects of spousal abuse were contract-breaking? Well, a year later... In 2009, the Korean Supreme Court reversed the verdict with a quite tone-deaf assertion that by coming forward and declaring herself a victim of domestic violence, Choi Jin-sil had constituted a failure to maintain proper social and moral honour. 
The Choi family would suffer further tragedy a couple of years later when on March the 29th, 2010, her brother, Choi Jin Young, hanged himself with an electrical cord in the attic of his apartment. He had been the public face of the nation's grieving, but had never really gotten over his sister's death. I'll just quote now from Jennifer Veal in Time magazine in 2008, talking about Choi Jin Sil. She was more than South Korea's Julia Roberts or Angelina Jolie. For nearly 20 years, Choi Jin Sil was the country's cinematic sweetheart and as close to being a national actress as possible. But since her body was found on October the 2nd, an apparent suicide, she has become a symbol of the difficult women face in this deeply conservative yet technologically savvy society. Incessant online gossip appears to have been largely to blame for her death. But it's also clear that public life as a single, working, divorced mum, still a pariah status in South Korea, was one role she had a lot of trouble with. So for those keeping count, that's two leading South Korean actresses committing suicide in a three-year period. And let's not forget the related suicides of Ahn Jae-hwan and Choi Jin-young. Suicide in South Korea is the highest in the developed world. I could have picked any number of other stories, including shiny star Jong Hyung's suicide last year. The reasons for the high level of suicide in Korea are many and complex, ranging from intense media coverage that seems to encourage copycats. Apparently the suicide rate went up 70% in the wake of Choi Jin Sil's death. And the cultural impacts from losing a relative and financial embarrassment. The stress and pressure of the education system and just the pressures of public image, not just for celebrities, but for normal people. And the biggest issue, sadly, is one that mental illness is still a taboo subject in Korea. It is estimated that 2 million South Koreans struggle with depression, but only 15,000 seek help. It isn't talked about within the family unit. It certainly isn't just... The government are trying to introduce schemes and initiatives to counter this, but sometimes things seem just too entrenched and too strange. Once again, another cheery <laughs> story from Stephen there. Yeah, I'm afraid that's the nature of the beast, isn't um, it? So, um, uh, anyway, I hope that wasn't too depressing for everybody. As, very insightful as always. Um, and uh, as always, you can, if you wish to uh, check out more of the Stephen's tales from the Asian dark side of Asian cinema, they are available um, in our archive, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like or subscribe button if you're listening to us on Podomatic or iTunes or even on Spotify. Uh, we're slowly branching out there and hitting all the different platforms. Uh, if you can't find uh, our show on your favorite platform though do let us know and uh, we will strive to correct that asap we are going to take a quick break and when we return we will be looking at feature selection for this evening which is perfect number hello everybody and welcome to the cinema recall podcast here at thatmomentin.com i am your host the Vern, and on each episode myself along with a guest we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you. Because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great fits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, 
listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy it. And we're back. Uh, you obviously are still listening to the Asian Cinema Film Club, and we are now going to look at our featured selection for this evening, which is Perfect Number. This is a film from 2012. It's a South Korean mystery drama directed by Bang In Jin, and directed by adapted from the novel The Devotion of Suspect X. Um, now, Stephen, obviously, this is one of your picks. And what is it about this film that obviously made you want us to look at this one? Okay, so there's a few reasons I wanted to talk about it. Um, firstly, as you rightly say, it's based on a novel by Keigo Hagashino called Devotion of Suspect X. And I came to this film in a really sort of obscure way. There's lots of movies and television shows in Japan. Um, based on the novels of Kiego Hagashino. Um, he did a, uh, a bunch of novels about a character called um, called Galileo, who's basically a physicist that's um, maybe a bit high-functioning, and he helps with solving crimes. Um, Devotion Subjects is, is, is the most famous one. The Galileo TV series stars um, Ko Shibasaki, who many people will know. She was in um, Keanu Reeves' 47 Ronin film, for example, and um, big Japanese singer called um, Masaharu Fukuyama. Um, really popular TV show, something I got into, very entertaining. The Devotion Subjects is like a, like a movie version of that that's what i saw first and really enjoyed it and um we might talk about that a little bit later then what happened was um they did a korean remake of it by um as you say by director bang Unjin, who's a female director who her previous film um princess aurora i really enjoyed sort of a dark revenge thriller and it also stars one of my favorite south korean actors Ryo sung bum However, when I started watching the film, there's two things come out of it. One is, it's the same story, but they've made this huge change in the characters. Um, there is no Galileo in it. There is no high-functioning physics professor. They've conflated the uh, detective character and, the, well, basically written the other guy out. So there's still the relationship between the protagonist and the de- and a lead detective, but it's a completely different dynamic. So instead of being a battle of wits as such, it's 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 a slightly different thing. Um, but really interesting, and Real Sing Bum does a fantastic performance. But it's sort of the same story, except what I'd forgotten is when I recommended this to you, mate. I'd forgotten how off the rails it goes in the last act in <laughs> the most syrupy Korean melodrama of all time. Well, that'd be certainly one way of, of putting it. Um, before we obviously get into it, I mean, the film itself it follows this guy called Kim Suk-go, who is basically, he's a brilliant mathematician, and he just used to bury himself in his, in his in maths, and rather than, like, have any sort of, like, interactions with people. And now... He's in his 30s. He's basically just working as a high school maths teacher. So he's got this amazing talent, but it's kind of been just sort of squandered. So 
in many ways, and I'm probably I don't know how you relate to this character, but he's kind of like Walter Walter White in Breaking Bad, in the fact that he was this genius in his field, but he's just now ended up basically at the the bottom end. Now, at the same time, he's got this sort of relationship happening with his uh, neighbor um, Beck Weinstein, who is played by Lee Yo Won, and uh, she runs the local sort of cafe where he buys his lunch from and it's really sort of like the high point of his day. Now, when her ex randomly decides to uh, turn up and decides that he's just going to lay the beat down on her and her niece because he's a nasty piece of work, um, unwittingly though to him, his her niece manages to kill him, uh, whether that's accidentally or intentionally. I think it's best left to the audience's interpretation. Um, and Kim Sok Go finds himself drawn into covering up this murder. Um, in turn, he finds that his old childhood friend is now a detective and uh, happens to also be investigating the crime, in turn, creating this whole twisted tale of which these characters are constantly sort of battling with to try and find out what happens and then we obviously have the last half hour where it kind of all falls apart um but yeah i mean what i mean what did you obviously make of this and i know you're obviously a fan of the series because you recommended it so i mean what's your sort of thoughts on this one well it's funny <clears throat> re-watching it again like i say we'll talk about the the way it changes in the final act. What I really love about it is, firstly, uh, Ryo Sungbum's character, this 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 withdrawn genius that, that can barely look at the woman, the object of his desire, and it's a, it's a, people might know him more more comedic roles or actually even quite darker roles and things like the Berlin File. I I, I love this guy. He's like a chameleon. <laughs> so, firstly, I wanted to bring him to the table. Um. The next thing is, I just love the central. I mean, did you get what he? Did you did you untangle it? Um, I think I I basically got got the gist of of why he was so involved in it because he obviously said when you initially think it, you think oh, it's because he's in love with this this woman that he's willing to to do what what it takes to sort of help her out. And when he sort of like initially turns up at the the crime scene, and he's got the ex husband there on the on the floor, and he sort of takes control of the situation. I was like expecting, oh, he's gonna turn out that he's got this unique set of skills. That he's like this, like the grey man, so to speak, and that he's got all these skills and that are gonna come into effect, um, or we're gonna see some sort of like. Um, see something like Coldfish where we're going to see like the darkening of human spirit and instead it kind of goes off it seems to be going that path until we get to like the final quarters you said and then it just like kind of goes in a very different direction for no apparent reason but the but the, the, the mystery is you know how what what he's done he does something that we don't know about too much later which is the reason why the police can't solve the crime and I know we want to talk we don't want to spoil no, it. No. Um so they've kept that from the original film. But I was I was just I was intrigued how well they'd hidden it. And it almost doesn't matter, does it? The crime itself is almost pointless. You're just waiting for him to get caught <laughs> and, and how is he gonna slip up? And Yeah. What yeah. is different about the Japanese one, the Korean one is the Japanese one, 
it's two very smart minds battling at a level that you or I probably couldn't cope with. Whereas this one, there's a it's a belligerent policeman who won't let it lie, will he? <laughs> so, well, this is well, the final slip. This is the uh, thing. He sort of like he's he knows um, who he who he, he thinks he knows who's done it, but he can't prove that they've done it. This is the whole. The whole sort of thing, and it's just basically about him slowly piecing it together. And there's so many moments where um, the smallest piece of information or smallest clue will like be there, and you're like, "Is he going to pick up on it?" And when we look at the sort of like the thank you note that she writes on the cap paper from her cafe, and uh, he asks for a piece of paper to write down a note on, and you think, "Oh my god, is he going to draw the comparison between the two? And the whole sequence, the whole thing with the alibi they create with the 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 aunt and the niece being at the cinema at this particular time, which would mean that they couldn't commit the crime. I thought that was all really sort of interesting. Um, when her friend uh, turns up again, the and he sort of like gets these like jealous moments. That's when I thought it was going to go like a bit dark. I mean, he's at the sporting goods store. He's got like the ice axe. I thought, oh, he's going to go completely off the rails and have this real dark moment. But it never happens. And it was around that moment that everything sort of fell apart. What had been such a fun ride watching this guy like somehow manage to constantly manipulate all the facts and details and everything and stay one step ahead of these these uh detectives um it just sort of like for some reason it sort of all fell apart uh once we get we get into that third quarter and they start introducing characters that i didn't really care about and uh all these sort of plot lines that didn't really need to be there there's another really strange thing about it as well which i hadn't noticed the first time i hadn't but uh, <laughs> kind of ties a bit into the um the Dark Tales of Asian Cinema thing I was talking about today. So in the original, the um, the, the the female, the lead female, is um, basically an ex-hostess bar girl, and it's her daughter. So it's her and her daughter who've escaped from a ex-lover, and and the guy that comes to the knight in shining armor guy is one of her ex-customers. Um, they're much coyer about things in this version, in the Korean one. Sort of clearly, she did work in a bar, but it's never really explicitly stated. And then there's this really weird thing where the the girl is her niece, and I never really understand why they made that change. Yeah, would, yeah. It, <laughs> would it would it be that? People wouldn't feel sympathy for a single mother, but they would feel sympathy for a woman who's raising another person's child. I think it's just more so that they can have the character of the niece be more of a smart ass, because she's she's if she was like a mother daughter character, then she'd probably get slapped for half the things she comes out with. Like the scene at the end where it's sort of like, um, oh, even though my aunt cooked this, it's not poison. Which I'm sure is just really what you want to hear with the, from the neighbours you've just met uh, when they're offering offering you uh, food. But um, yeah, I think I don't know whether they thought it was like a more hit relationship to have it as like an aunt and niece uh, than a mother uh, daughter. Yeah, it's just funny. it was just it was just really strange and something I hadn't noticed the time I watched it. Of course, it's a Korean version, so the 
you know, not just as the acting, but the production on it is very high yeah. class, isn't yeah. it? When you compare it to a Japanese, the Japanese film, the Japanese film looks like a high-end TV movie. It, you know, it doesn't have the same production values <clears throat> at all. Um, but I, lo- I love the central. But we have to talk about the way it falls apart and it turns into this. Um, so again, all the same beats are there from the original story. So the way that uh, that the Kim Suk Go basically turns himself in and takes the fall for it, and the reasons why we find out in the same way. But there's a lot less crying and wailing <laughs> at, about that. You know, there's, there's a there's a realization of oh my god, this guy's done it for me. I don't know why. Rather than twenty minutes of ugh, classic Korean melodrama, lots of tears, lots of wailing to no end. And as I said in our classic episode, there's a lot of romantic dramas in Korea that don't even end with a kiss. And I think we had one here, didn't we? I think we did. <laughs> as I said, we got to the final corner. I was like, it was like the last half hour or so. And I was like, God, this is really turning into a struggle to get through. Um, especially as they start destroying... Uh, Bang Yun-jun, for some reason, takes it upon herself to start destroying all these relationships that we built up. So the relationship uh, between... Um, like Ryu Zhangbang and um, Li Yo One. Uh, so the the relationship with these between these two neighbors is all been sort of friendly and stuff. And then she becomes very critical of the fact that he's had these feelings for her, and that starts accusing him of having these ulterior intentions by the fact he's covered up a murder for her. Which I have to say is like probably not one of the most best ways to pick up someone. Uh, to cover up their murder, but it just put took the whole film in just such an uncomfortable direction. And seeing these two detectives scramble around trying to force something together, just I don't know, it just became a little overly tedious. Much less the over familiarity between um, to Go's character and the detective who we knew from school. And I mean, it's not even though they were like particularly good friends in school when we had the flashback sequence yet he forces his way back into his life and they like carry on like they're good buddies even though they seem to have nothing in common well again that's another strange thing they did so like i say in, in the original these are two real intelligent guys a physicist and a mathematician at the top of their game and that's how they knew each other at school they were both kind of outsiders i guess and they bonded i had no sense that this policeman fella who clearly was just shy of bullying him by <laughs> shoving those flowers in his mouth and stuff like that. They had a connection, they had a moment, but they weren't friends, were they? He he was they had a nickname for him, and uh, was it Dopey Pythagoras? Something like that. It's, it's some name that doesn't translate well that into when they translate it into English. It's much like uh, when we watch The Killer, and their nicknames reach of his Dumbo and Mickey Mouse. Which I'm sure plays really well in in its native Hong Kong, but over here it's kind of like, well, that was kind of a bit of a confusing name to have for each other. So, yeah, it's in the book as well. So the book is actually you can get the book. It's translated into English, and the and the, in the book it's similar. You think well, that's not much of a nickname, is it? I think they probably struggled. The friendship they have is kind of like you know when you when you meet that friend from school who then suddenly like carries on like they were like your best friend ever and there's some guy that you tolerated in school 
That's the sort of relationship they have. It, it, it is. And in some ways, that feels maybe a little bit more realistic than having two guys that are like super geniuses that happen to know each other and fall over each other at the same crime scene. So maybe, but it was just interesting. And what we have to remember is it's also directed by a woman which is pretty rare in South Korea. I mean, that's pretty rare in America, isn't it? But um, it, it, it's... I don't, I, did you get any sense that it was a woman's eye rather than a male eye? Not at all. Not until you film? mentioned it. Um, at, the start, at the start of us talking about this film, I had no idea that it was a female director. Um, and I'm all for like, female directors. I think definitely the world needs more female directors and... When we look at the great female talent out there, people like Perpy Spiris, um, Sofia Coppola, and you look at obviously this film. This film's very competently directed. It's just the plotting in the last last like half hour, which sort of un- undoes everything that it's built up before that. Up until that point, it's a really fun ride. I mean, it's a really interesting watching these characters develop and how each new challenge is resolved, such as the fact that she's put under the lie detector test. And it's only the fact that he goes in charge at her, screaming at her, that invalidates the test on, like, the key question. Um, those little moments I really, really enjoyed. But, I mean, I'm glad that they didn't make the detective a genius as well. I mean, he's not Denzel Washington. I mean, that's his trick for playing characters, but they're a genius. Um... And I was I was kind of glad for not seeing it here as well. So, yeah, I think that kind of grounds the movie a little more. Um, interestingly, there's a mainland Chinese remake, which is um, a bit dull, really. Um, it kind of traverses the same uh, sort of the a midpoint between the tone of this one and the Japanese one. And there's also, um, I've seen that, but I haven't seen there's an Indian, I don't think Bollywood, but some Indian cinema remake of it, although they don't admit to it, but it's clearly a complete rip-off of um, Perfect wow. Number. Wow. So it's, it's a story that's got legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah surprise, surprise, right. Bollywood ripping something off. But yeah, I, I, I just think it's, it's a very Korean film. But what the reason I really, I think, we we sometimes have a lot of um, sniffiness, don't we, about Western remakes of Asian films. And I think I wanted to show you it happens in Asia all the time. <laughs> this isn't this isn't the first or last time that um, a Korean, especially Korean, tend to take lots of Japanese properties and turn them into their own so that might be lots of tv shows lots of films um they will make korean versions of them and there's probably sort of socio-political reasons for that uh, that we won't go into now but they, they probably japanese culture is very popular but they sometimes feel the need to koreanify cool um i try to think i mean there's anything else in particular that sort of stands out for you in this one i mean it's as i said it's hard to talk about this one without spoiling too many of the major sort of plot points of it and it is as i said it's a film that's very well constructed for its first three quarters <laughs> i don't know just, just yeah it really i really don't want to give it away i mean i i you know it, it would be interesting if i got 
viewed as a pairing, but maybe we'll talk about that shortly. Yeah, you just broke up so there. You, you said it would be interesting. Be interesting. It would be interesting if I had got you to watch the Japanese um, version yeah. as well, yeah, and to draw the, the differences. Um, they would make a very interesting double bill, but maybe we would talk about that shortly. <laughs> um, so I think, I mean, unless there's anything else you want to discuss in this one. You good? Um, so on to so further viewing. I mean, what's your sort of further viewing from here? Are you just going to recommend I watch the Japanese version now? And I've got I've got two okay. films. Okay. I think so. Firstly, I would suggest the Devotion of Suspect X, um, the the Japanese version. Um, I would actually suggest the TV show. It's a bit lighter, um, but the this there's a couple of movies that have come from the Galileo TV show, but the Devotion of Suspect X is is definitely the best. And I think it'd be an interesting comparison. But I'd also like to suggest you check out, and I've also talked about it, but um, uh, Pang Yunjin's first film, which is called Princess Aurora from 2005, which is, well, it's a rather fabulous sort of um, sort of revenge fantasy with a lead woman, um, Yom Jong-Hua, who's one of my favourite Korean actresses basically ends up becoming a serial killer by accident. Um, very classly made. I mean, Pang Yunjin was a was a pretty um, famous and successful actress in her own right, and it's pretty amazing to see her actually become a a full fledged director. So yes, I'd go for Princess Aurora and the Devotion of Suspect X. Cool. Um, for myself, I'm going to say Sion Sono's Coldfish. As my uh, sort of recommendation, mainly because it's again it's a mild mannered sort of white collar man. He's uh, drawn into darker worlds, and as a result, uh, becomes all the more corrupted from it. Um, Coldfish is probably one of my favourite films by Sion Sono. I think it's up there with uh, the likes of Why Don't You Play in Hell. Um, it's got some moments of heavy splatter in there, but it's funny just seeing moments such as the guy who set up the Hooters of Fish. Keep um shops so for that respect it's kind of amusing to watch but yeah i think if anything um i would say coldfish is is the film i want most want to sort of pair it with this but i think uh i think if you're looking for an interesting film i think this is it's certainly worth a, a look especially if you like korean cinema um as for the the actor himself, the, the sort of lead actor himself um i mean as you said i forgot just how many good things he'd obviously done as well and I think Crime Fist is also worth checking out as well uh, if you haven't already and uh, Aaron I think is that how you pronounce it? Arahan? Um, from t- Arahan um, from 2004 is also uh, is also a lot of fun if a little random um, so uh, yeah that would Coldfish would certainly be and um, his brother is also a very popular director. So it's a very talented family. Yeah, definitely. So, um, and yeah, I mean, this obviously brings us to the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. We hope, as always, that you've enjoyed listening. Um, 
if you uh, haven't done already, again, please do like to hit the subscribe. You know, leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. It all helps. Uh, whether you're listening to us on iTunes, Podomatic, Spotify, or uh, through our home base at momentin.com, uh, we do definitely appreciate any feedback we receive. Um, also, make sure that you uh, head over to our blog, um, Agent Cinema Film Club. WordPress.com um, and vote in the poll to decide our Halloween selection, which uh, and decide which film we will be watching on the next episode. So we can't obviously say now what we're going to be watching because the poll has only just gone up. But um, I'm excited to to see what uh, you guys all vote for. Um, volume four of our mixtape series as well is also available as of the time as of now recording. Um, this is our ongoing series where we just share the tracks have been sort of keeping our interest at the moment and as always it's a bit of an eclectic mix between the three of us um but myself Stephen, and team member steph who you can read her insights into like k-pop and other fun aspects of asian cinema over on uh, the facebook page um certainly the latest volume features the uh, tracks from the likes of shinny uh, amber electric eel shock um, Asobi Suzuki, we've got also on there, Teresa Tang, uh, Imumi Teke, and uh, a band called AKB48, uh, who also did uh, Sugar Rush from Wreck-It Ralph, and I've been kind of obsessed with since I got the recommendation from Stephen to put them on the tape, so. But, but... Yeah, <laughs> they're an interesting band. There's like, there's 500, like 500 members. members. Yeah, well, there's meant to be 48, but obviously they've got little sub-bands and trainee <laughs> bands. And, um, I mean, to be honest with you, it's not entirely my kind of music, but I thought there's nothing more Japanese than AKB48. Uh, um, and there's some really interesting documentaries about them, actually, that bit, bit about the dark side of... Um, unintentionally show the dark side of uh, Asian idol culture. I think, yeah, there's also the uh, documentary that Vice put out on uh, Noisy, which talks about K-pop uh, idols and the fact they they train them in schools like um, like military camps and the fact that you assign personalities um, of the sort of characters you, you play and you can't be seen as having relationships because you've got to be seen as being available to your fans and all these oh, uh, yeah. So there's rules. the famous one, the AKB AKB48 member who got caught with a boyfriend. And ended up having to shave her head and apologise <laughs> to the world. I mean, it's it's scary stuff. And and you know, and it's what was that Brazilian band? Was it Memwendo or something like that? Which was the boy band where they replaced them all. It's kind of where it started. Well, they've taken it to new extremes. There's got to be about 150 members, and then when you hit like 25, you're too old and you're kicked to the curb. I've had to say, the closest we ever got here in the UK was the Polyphonic Spree, which had about 100 members. <laughs> yeah, or um, didn't we have those tiny tots or something like that? Something like that was uh, where, where you had to be a kid and you were... But yeah, it's 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 actually <laughs> kind of scary, but it's also vastly entertaining because it's just the twiest high-energy pop you can imagine. Cool. Um, well, thank you as always for listening, and uh, thank you to my co-host, Stephen. And uh, we will be back next time with our Halloween special. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you choose for our viewing fate. So uh, get out there, vote, spread the word, you know, tell your friends, spam your enemies and uh, get them to vote in the poll and uh, decide what we're going to be watching for Halloween. But until next time, good night.
「おどりつづけていたい夜なのさ」